Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, in our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other, so we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look easy. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after season one, I'm pretty sure we already have. (laughs) So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look. Apparently, we need to add another tricky conversation to our list. (laughs) I'm squishy. I just like, yeah. So right now I'm a little uncomfortable with this. But as parents, we already dread two conversations. The birds and the bees talk. Yep. Yeah. And then later as they get older, hopefully a lot older. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. The sex and the protection talk. Yes, for sure. But now there's another talk. I know. I can't believe this. I can't believe it. I, I, it's, it's really hard to wrap my head around this. So the talk I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is the pornography talk. <sighs> yes. Yes, that's the right. We're, there's no telling when or at what age it will happen, but it's going to happen. So we need to know how to navigate and discuss porn with our kids. And um, I guess it just depends on what camp you're in. Right. Are you in the camp that says we need to shield our kids from all that content? Or are you in the camp that accepts that porn is part of our culture and simply part of growing up? Like when we were growing up, you know, boys and uh, would go and try to sneak a look at their dad's Playboy that was hidden in the shoebox in the closet. Or <laughs> Yeah. And I'm, I'm now remembering um, being at my friend Janet's house and her dad had Playboy Channel. And so we were like, whoa. Oh. Yeah. So we like we took a little peek at that. We were like, oh, my goodness. So have you heard about kids watching porn in your circles? Not not so much. But a couple of years ago, Clark was in a car with a coworker and the guy got a phone call from his wife and his wife was going absolutely nuts. And Clark was kind of uncomfortable because it was the guy was just kind of being yelled at. Anyway, their son was down in the basement on the computer and the wife was in the kitchen where the printer is. Oh, no. And the printer sprang to life and out popped some porn. And the son like had pictures no, of, of naked of, girls. Yes. And the son had no idea that he was printing to that printer. And he had no idea that his mother was, was right be, there. Yes. Oh, no. So uh, Clark was like, well, wait, why, why, why was the dad getting yelled at? He wasn't even there. Well, I think the mom must have assumed that the dad was the one who oh. had been on the site. I don't know. But he was a 10-year-old boy. And I'm sure there's curiosity. Sure. We've talked about don't put your computer in the basement. Yes. 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 But 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 either way, like kids are going to find things. And right. um, and I think you you've well, heard I, some stuff. I the reason why we're talking about this today is because um, porn is. I've I've been hearing about this anecdotally from um, a lot of my circles. Um, in fact, uh, I have a friend who's a therapist and said that it like porn is prevalent. Um, for boys in fifth through eighth grade, like it's a, a big thing. Prevalent, not just yeah. She deals as a therapist. She sees it a lot, and in fact, um, 
I have another friend who has a 12-year-old who he says watches porn regularly. And he was joking about it and said his son had even shown him a couple good sites. And he's talking to me very matter-of-factly and I'm like, I'm like, okay, where's the punchline? Because you're joking. You know, this is, you can't be serious. And he was not pulling my leg. He was, he was serious. Is this a suburban thing? I mean, maybe I should move. <laughs> no, this is a friend out of state okay. that I was catching up with. Okay. Um, but so according to a nonprofit organization called Culture Reframed, a third of young people have seen porn by the age of 12. A third. Yes. How about this? Porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Combined. Combined? Yes. So we know our kids know all about Netflix and uh, loading the cart on Amazon for sure and Twitter. So holy smokes, this is a big deal. What do we do? All right. Well, you know, we always say let's get the experts. So to talk about this, we're bringing in Dan Rice, the interim executive director of Answer at Rutgers University. Answer is a national organization that provides and promotes access to comprehensive sexuality education for our youth and the adults who teach them. So um, that's us. So thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks for having me. So a third of kids have seen porn by 12. That, that was one statistic I saw. There's probably many. This seems crazy to me. Are smartphones and laptops and tablets all to blame for this? So what we have to remember is pornography. I, I heard Anne talking a little bit about having a friend when she was younger who they watched the Playboy channel that their parents had. And you talked a little bit about parents having you know their Playboy stashed in a, in a box in a closet mm-hmm. and things like that. It's just so much more accessible to young people now with all the smartphones and devices that young people have. They have information right at the access, right, you know, right at their hands. And so it's more accessible to young people. And for many of them, they see it as actual examples of sex and sexuality that beats for, in their minds, getting and having those awkward conversations with parents who feel really uncomfortable with it. And so it's... Um, yeah, it, 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 there are statistics that there was um, a study in August 2017 by the American Psychological Association where the average range for boys having been exposed to pornography was 13, but their range was from ages 5 to 26. Oh, 5? Five. 5. That has five. to be accidental. There's Really? And so, yeah, so so let's talk about that actually. So there are several different ways that young people come across pornography, and accidental is one of them. In fact, most young people come across pornography for the first time by accident, and it's because the kids are not seeking out pornography, but pornography is actually seeking out the kids in many cases. And so, what a lot of pornographic websites will do is buy up websites that are similar to websites that they know young people are looking for, and they may change the .gov to .com. Or, or something along those lines, or if they know young people commonly misspell a word, they may buy the website, the domain, that has that misspelled site so that young people accidentally stumble across it. On purpose. On purpose. Yeah, yeah. We've, we were talking about it when we were prepping for this, that whitehouse.com is not whitehouse.gov. Correct. And kids who are searching for something might very innocently go to whitehouse.com, which is a porn site, right? Yes. That is correct. I don't know specifically what happened, but I have a friend whose daughter was doing something in health. Now, so, you know, that kind of search could garner a lot of different things. For sure. And she, I forget what it was. I wish I knew the search word. And she came across something and uh, it might have been oral sex or something. And she's like, 
mom, what? I don't understand. What? Why did I see that? At she least she can't, asked her mom. She did, but she couldn't unsee it. And she was, <laughs> so she was like, oh my goodness. And that was just for a silly, you know, report for school. Do you have other examples? Yeah, I think I think those are a lot of the most common ones that young people are looking for something, you know, that they're doing a research report on or, you know, something along those lines. And they stumble across something, like you said, the difference between whitehouse.gov and whitehouse.com is a really big difference in a lot of cases. So accidental being the most common way that young people are coming across pornography. But, you know, some young people are curious and they're actually seeking it out on their own. And so parents have to be prepared to have those conversations with young people because we have to remember that we're sexual beings from the time that we're born. And when young people start to go through adolescence, they're going to become curious about their bodies and they're going to become curious about other people's bodies and about sex and things of that nature. And if we shame them or we punish them for stumbling across something, they're less likely to come and talk to us when there are other things that come up on the website. For example, bullying, right? We wouldn't want to shut down a young person who's, you know, coming to us because they're being bullied online. So we have to make sure that we're not punishing them for things that are out of their control if they should stumble across pornography. And we see that in their browser history. It's not because necessarily they went looking for it. They may have stumbled across it. In some cases, they may be looking for it. So actually having open and honest conversations with them about it and talking about porn as being, you know, something that's produced for adult entertainment and is not something that's factual or should be a substitute for comprehensive sex education is a good way to start those conversations. And of course, as we would with any other area like drugs or alcohol or things like that, we want to encourage young people to make good decisions around that. So you mentioned that sometimes they're going looking for something because they don't understand it. Like, you know, that maybe they hear a reference to something. So, and you know, the, the, Almighty Google, the YouTube, you know, whatever. So they, they search something, they end up seeing porn, and we're supposed to say to them, listen, um, that's not necessarily how real life works, or are we supposed to, how do we start that conversation? Are we supposed to approach them, or are we supposed to let them approach us? So it can happen either way. Uh, certainly if you know that your child is looking at porn with any degree of regular, you know, Um, looking at it on a regular basis, you would want to certainly talk to them about it. The thing we have to remember about pornography is that while the jury is still out around, you know, what the research says is the effects of young people on porn, we do know that just like we wouldn't necessarily do advanced math with a kindergartner, right, showing pornography to a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, it's just not developmentally appropriate. And so talking to them about things like the fact that it is adult entertainment and that things that are depicted in porn are often very unrealistic and comparing that to maybe movies where they've seen special effects of things that a person can't do in real life, you can talk about that those may be some things that happen in pornography that the body, you know, the body types are, you know, not the typical body types that you would see on people. And there's a lot of editing that happens to make things look like they're not. We could talk about the lack of intimacy that's often represented in porn and the misogynistic messages that are often portrayed and having those conversations in a way that are age and developmentally appropriate for young people so that we can then lead into talking about making good decisions around seeking out that information. 
So that's interesting that you talk about um, how it's adult entertainment, because um, I was reading a New York Times article that featured several parent stories about like how they discovered their kid was, you know, accidentally or purposely looking at porn. And she didn't think anything of it until her 13 year old son um, came and asked why women always like to be choked. Right. And she was like, oh. Uh, and so she was like, I can't believe that I didn't have this conversation before knowing that I knew that they were looking at it. And so she felt like, I think she felt a little bit like, oh, shoot. I should. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so then it became a discussion, but it was really pretty amazing that the kid came to her and, and was that open and honest. Like, why are, why are they, why do they always want to get choked? And then it became a discussion. Yeah. And it's great that the kid felt comfortable enough to go to their parent and ask a question like that. And that's just a a perfect testament to why we want to, you know, as much as on the inside, we may be completely freaking out when we find out that our kids are watching porn or being exposed to porn to sort of deal with that and then have the conversation with them in a way that's not going to be shame-based or punishing and have that conversation with them. Because I heard Anne say also at the beginning that, uh, going back to the story about going to their friend's house, even if you put all the parental devices in the world on your child's um, cell phone or on your computers at home or laptops or things like that, you don't know what kind of control and access their friends may have at their houses, right? Right, And so having the conversation about, again, making good decisions around it so that if they are with a friend and in other places where those parental blocks don't exist, they are still making good choices. So if you discover your kid is looking at porn, um, what should you do? Yeah. You know, I, I read somewhere that it could be a teachable moment, you know, so that, you know, do you, do you sit down and watch with the kid? Do you, uh, do you, I, I don't, what, what do you do? So first you breathe, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need to take a, take a deep breath and sort of like process that. We need to give ourselves the time and space to process that. Then having a conversation with a young person and, you know, saying, you know what, I know that you saw this online and I'm not mad. I just want to understand. And so you can start by asking them questions. You know, were you looking for this? If so, why were you looking for it? If you came across it accidentally, how did it make you feel? What is it that you saw? Having those conversations and then going into those talking points that I mentioned earlier about this being adult entertainment and that you really want them to be able to come to you and talk to you when they see these types of things because this really is for adults. But we also need to remember just sort of going back to that to the most important point here is that for a lot of young people, they see pornography as a substitute for sex education that they're not getting in schools or from parents. And so we need to be having these conversations anyway. I heard you talking about the, the dreaded birds and bees talk. Right. If we start having those conversations at a very early age that are in a way that are developmentally appropriate, um, it becomes normal and natural to have these conversations with your kids and it becomes less awkward for you and less awkward for them. And I think most parents would really want to know, would really want their kid to be able to come to them if they have questions about these types of things instead of getting misinformation off the internet or from their friends and things like that. I think I think I take for granted that everyone, um, all schools have sex education class like a a unit on it because we have it in at our school in fifth grade they do um like body changes and stuff Mm -hmm. and then in sixth grade it's how life begins and 
in preparation for this, I was talking to a bunch of friends over the weekend and asking them, you know, about how what's happened in their house. And a lot of school, there are a lot of schools that don't, they do like your body changes and stuff, but the sex talk, they leave for the parents to do. I don't think it happens in our sixth grade. That's terrible because what, you know, some people aren't going to proactively do that. And so, of course, a kid's going to go online when they hear something on the playground and they're like, what, what is that? I got to go look it up. And then it just happens. Or make bad decisions and say, well, that's not sex because it's not actual intercourse. So, therefore, I'm not actually having sex. So, they're totally misinformed. Right. So, it's just, it's interesting that that, um, it's interesting that in my camp that that doesn't happen all over. And so that leads to that. I have a question for you, Dan. What are some common mistakes that uh, parents make in having the porn talk other than, oh, my God, what, you, what, you're so much in trouble. Like, what What else? <laughs> like, go to your room. Your, your phone is taken away. Like, I mean, that would be over the top. And I obviously know that. Or where's your father? <laughs> or or the loud thump you hear on the floor because I've passed out and I've fallen down because I'm like shocked that my kid has been watching it. What what other what other things happen? I would say making assumptions about why the young person was looking at pornography or um, how they came across it in the first place. Just assuming that the kid was seeking it out and not necessarily taking into consideration that maybe they came across it um, by accident and not understanding that it may have actually been a traumatic experience for the young person as well. Mm. So they may have come across this by accident and they may be completely horrified by what it is that they saw. And so by then going into that mode of you're in so much trouble, it's, it's sort of like, you know, even building on top of this traumatic experience that they've just had that they didn't ask for, right? And so just making assumptions around the why and the how, I'd say is probably, other than, you know, hitting the roof, is probably the most common mistake I would say parents make. (laughs) Guilty. I I would be totally guilty of that. Right. So essentially starting a conversation um, with questions rather than accusations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just to go back to the point that Tracy was making before, what often happens is that parents assume schools are having the sex talk, schools assume parents are having the sex talk, and the kid is left in the middle without getting any information. And so they're just going to go seek it out on their own. Right. And Dan, it's it's different from, you know, Playboy in your dad's closet or mom's closet, maybe, uh, because there's there's much more access now, right? And and they can't, you know. It's not just a picture. You no, know, it's not. It's not just a, and and even, like Playboy was artistic almost, you know. But they well, my have, dad read it for the articles. Of course, now. right, right, right. <laughs> um, but it, it's a whole new world now, right? Absolutely, because they're not just seeing pictures of bodies that are unrealistic. They're seeing behaviors that are in in some ways violent, in many ways misogynistic and and unrealistic. Um, And so boys, especially who are concrete learners, see that as being a very um, concrete way of learning how to have sex, right? They think that's how it's supposed to happen. That's how long it's supposed to last. That's how they're supposed to behave with their partner. That's how their bodies are supposed to look. And the sort of implications for both boys and girls is they could also end up with really bad body image issues as a result of watching too much porn because they're constantly comparing themselves to this image that they're seeing, which is really unrealistic for most people. 
Oh, for sure. And I, I got to say, I have not watched porn um, anytime recently. Um, I'm going to bring something up, Dan. I'm remembering when Tracy and I were single, and I went to pick her up at her apartment on Waveland. And on the way there, I stopped to get a movie. And in the back of the movie, like rental place, they had a... a we're dating ourselves. I know. Exactly. There's actually things you put in a machine <laughs> yes, to watch a to movie. Watch. It was called a VCR. <laughs> um, beta. Yes. No, it's not beta. <laughs> Uh, but I thought it'd be really funny to go into the back and, and get one of these uh, off limits, you know, uh, videos. And I put it on the on the car seat when I was picking Tracy up, just to like see your head fall off. <laughs> and, I don't remember you know, this. It was I got a movie called Hannibal Lichter. <laughs> Oh my God! Now I remember. That's all you had to say. And I just wanted to see her head fall off, <laughs> and it did. It fell off. But, it exploded. Yes, actually. it exploded. But you know, we we have not. It's not been a thing that I've uh, looked at much. But I imagine the messages are a you know totally distorted bodies uh, on both sides. Yes, and absolutely, and no intimacy, and. And like pizza delivery guys, right? <laughs> right. No, in many <laughs> cases, so no consent. In many ways, when they're looking at it for with the lens of um, sex ed, there's no contraception. There's no, oh, right. you know, how do you put the condom on type things. So they're not seeing any forms of protection that are happening uh, to sort of reduce their own risk if they're using it in place of sex ed. Right. And so it's just it's really bad news when young people are turning to pornography for sex education. It cannot be considered a substitute for, um, you know, we have to be pushing for comprehensive sex ed in our schools. And most states across the country do not require it. And some of the states that do require it do not require that it's medically accurate. So we still have a long way to go around you know, comprehensive sex ed in schools and people feeling comfortable talking about sexuality. And the other myth that I really want to dispel that a lot of parents believe is that talking about sex with your kids is going to encourage them to go out and have sex. If you're having open and honest conversations with your children about sex and sexuality, they're actually more likely to delay first intercourse. And we have research that supports that. That's good, because I, we were going to ask if parents should preemptively talk about it Um ahead of time or wait until they come to us. So that that's that's a good point to go ahead and have those conversations with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd say even from the earliest ages, we can be talking about sex and sexuality in ways that are developmentally appropriate. So even by talking to your children about the proper names for the body parts and using the words vulva and penis and vagina and things like that. We normalize body parts just like we would say elbow or chin, right? Using those proper names, um, you know, sends the message that those body parts are no different from the rest. When we skirt around using the proper terminology, we're talking, we're saying that those body parts are shameful and we shouldn't be talking about those body parts. We can teach consent to kids as young as three years old by talking about about things like, can I please borrow your pencil, right? Right. I don't have to give somebody, you don't have to give, you know, Auntie Pam a hug if you don't want to, and that's bodily autonomy. And so there's a lot of things that we can be doing from a very early age that are talking about sexuality and sexual health that are developmentally appropriate. When we talk about comprehensive sex ed that's through the years, we're not talking about 
talking about condoms with kindergartners. We're talking about some of the things that I just, you know, sort of gave examples of. Sure, age appropriate. Yeah, and Dan, exactly. we we talked about uh, consent and the language of consent uh, in our first season, and it was, you're right. It's you know, it can be as much as if I say, "May I have your pencil?" and Jeannie says, "Um." Uh. Okay. Is that a yes or is that a no? You know, how do you read that? And right. and we should be able to teach our sons and daughters to read signals. We should also teach them to say yes or no and mean it, but um it's much more complicated than just yes or no. Absolutely. And they are certainly not going to learn consent from porn. No, right, no. right. <laughs> so now, Dan, if if we're in the camp and that we want to screen out all that type of content, um, I've got actually two questions. I've got two questions for you. One is, um, how do we screen it? Are there are there ways to limit the possibilities? Um, and also, are there resources we can turn to where we can have them learn appropriately? Sure. So there's all kinds of parental filters that exist out there. You just have to find the one that you think is going to be best um, for you and for your family. So you can start there. But again, having the conversation is not going to – putting the parental filters is not going to be a replacement for having the conversations because, as I mentioned earlier, they're also going to have access to their friends' phones and whatever access their friends may have on their televisions and whatnot at home, right? And so we can't shelter them 24-7. They're going to have social lives with other people. And so just having those conversations and really encouraging them to make good decisions. Answer is a partner on uh, a project called Amaze, and it's amaze.org. And at amaze.org, which is a series of short animated videos designed for 10 to 14-year-olds, we have a parent section. And so we actually have a video under our personal safety category that's called Porn Fact or Fiction. And in the parent section, there's some talking points and some ways to start the conversation with your young person around internet safety. It gives you the same advice around don't shame or punish your child if they come across pornography. So that would be one resource I would point parents to. For older kids, we have our website, which is sexetc.org, sexetc.org. That's more for a high school level audience. And it's sex ed information written by teens for teens. So it's developmentally appropriate for high school students. It's all medically accurate. And it's in the language that they use, like how they talk and everything. Exactly, exactly. And so there's, uh, we have one of our teen writers who wrote a story called How Sex Ed Can Help When We Stumble Upon Porn. And she talks about her experience as a 10-year-old um, stumbling upon pornography and how traumatic it was for her and how she had so many questions and, um, you know, how sex ed can really help to sort of, you know, be that replacement for kids going and seeking out porn. Sure. You brought something up that I didn't really think about, but for my friend whose um, was doing, daughter was doing that report, I do remember at the time it was fairly traumatic for her because she didn't understand why that <laughs> she didn't understand the oral sex thing and why, frankly, why would you do that? And because right. so she was like absolutely distraught that she had seen it because she doesn't understand why anyone would ever want to do that and so on. So it was it was tough. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, again, don't make assumptions. Don't shame. Don't punish. The best thing you can do if you want your child to really um, grow up and be safe and make healthy decisions is keep the lines of communication open. Because as soon as you close the lines of communication, they're not going to come back to you with additional questions. And they're going to go seek out that information on their own. And the information that they may find may not be accurate. 
But right. do you want, so it's not developmentally appropriate. So let's say a, a, a 10 year old or 11 year old is doing it. You stumble upon it. You, you are um, supportive and not confrontational and all those things, but they, but, but you don't ultimately want them to be watching that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not developmentally appropriate for them to be watching porn when they're 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, porn is illegal. We have to, re- you know, we have to remember that porn is illegal for anybody under the age of 18. And that's important for us to remember. And that's because wow. it's just not developmentally appropriate. But talking to young people about the illegality of it is not necessarily going to stop them from going and seeking it out. Right. And so... You know, having these conversations, if you find that the conversations are not working, obviously you're going to want to look into parent filters, but continuing that conversation and trying to find out what is it that's drawing this child to continuously going back and looking for it. Is there curiosity? Is it because they're bored? Is it a replacement for, you know, something that they're, you know, feeling emotionally, just trying to get down to the root of what it is that's causing them to consistently keep going back and seeking this out. And again, it may just be curiosity. They may just be curious because they're hearing these things from an older sibling. They're hearing them on the bus from older kids. They're hearing them at school from older kids. Um, You know, there's a lot of different ways that young people will hear about things related to sex and sexuality and then go out and try and seek that information. And again, they're doing it because they don't feel comfortable asking their parent or guardian or caregiver to, you know, what is X, Y, and Z. Um, So they feel like searching it out on their own is the best way to do it without having those uncomfortable conversations. And I'm I'm flashing back now because I'm remembering there was a book called Forever by Judy Bloom. It was a book where a teenage girl has sex for the first time. And That book made its way around my eighth grade class like wildfire, and that's how we learned. We learned what sex was by reading that book, and we didn't have access to any other, you know, we could go to the library and try and find more, I suppose. But, But like now if they hear something, they can just go, they have limitless opportunities to find out bad information. Exactly. And we want to we want to remember that we have this culture in America around sex is bad and we, it's shaming and all of these things up until a certain age. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh, you're pregnant and it's wonderful and it's the best thing ever and you're having a family and all of these things. Right. And there's no sort of shift, you know, between when that happens. And so we want to make sure that we're not shaming young people around sex and sexuality, right? We don't want to do harm to them and to their self-esteem and, you know, make them feel like, you know, sex is a shameful thing because those are things that can last with them through a lifetime. So having the conversations, normalizing curiosity, and just making sure that young people know that they can come to you with their questions are the best things you can do to continue, uh, you know, a healthy dialogue and set your kid on the right path to having, you know, a healthy future, you know, for themselves and and eventually with a partner. And Dan, not just through a lifetime, because if you are feeling shame and don't discuss it, you're not going to teach your kids and your kids won't teach their kids. You know, it's a cycle. So we, we really need to sort of break it if we are, if we haven't already. Absolutely. And it won't be one talk. I think we've talked about this before. It's not just one singular talk like, okay, here here it is. It's like multiple little mini conversations 
over time. Absolutely. So, I always say that the, the birds and the bees talk is a lifetime conversation. That's not a talk. Yeah. Right, right. Good point. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan Rice, Interim Executive Director at Answer. You've been so great in flushing out all this stuff. It's it's a it was an uncomfortable I, I was like I was stunned by the whole thing when I when I heard my friends talking about it. And so I was like, we have to talk about this. And so I just gotta get gotta get comfortable with talking about it. Yeah, because I'm not. I'll be honest. Right. So, we, and that's okay. That's okay. You have to. You have to give yourself the space to become comfortable with that, and then have those conversations. Right. And so, it's something that as as parents, we all have to do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. So apparently, it's not if, but when. Yep. And it can be on their phones, tablets, computers, um, going to their friend's house and seeing their dad's Playboy channel, whatever it is. Um, we need to support and educate our kids about healthy sexuality and make sure they don't feel embarrassed or too uncomfortable to ask a question um, when they're curious because if we shut it down, they won't come back. Exactly. And, and what's our job? Our job is to teach them. I, I had the conversation with my kids and I said, you know, if you don't feel comfortable talking to me, you could go to dad or you could go to your aunt or your uncle mm-hmm. or a friend uh um, like people we call aunts, you know, yes. Auntie Anne or something, exactly. if you feel more comfortable going to somebody else. Um, but just ask the question. So, um, and, and don't, I don't like the searches. I said, don't, don't go searching online because you, you don't know what you're going to get when you, right. when you do that. So just come to one of us. And I think this answer.com and sex ETC and uh, Amaze, these are going to be great resources. So, well, it's, you know, if you think about it, if if porn sites get more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter, we, we have a big hill to climb. I mean, yeah. that's that's insane. That's a lot. That's a lot of visitors. It's also amazing to me that the industry exists. I can't like I I and seek it out when they yeah. when because Dan t- actually told me when I was setting up the interview about the whitehouse.com dot com mm-hmm. that that's crazy. Yeah, that means they're purposely like they're looking for our kids. Right. They want their eyeballs. Right. That's scary to me. Yeah. And icky. I can't believe that kids can just get in, that there's no... Like when you go to like barrier. a... Like if you go to a, like a brewery website or yeah. one of those things and you have to type in your, your birthday and stuff. Yeah. Do, I don't even know. Do they have... I don't know. I'm sure our kids could lie. So <laughs> Exactly. So do you think uh, our podcast can compete with porn, Anne? I cannot believe that this is the transition you're making. <laughs> Hey man, I'm just. I mean, do we? I would love to have more visitors than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter, but uh, <laughs> me too. Every every single like or rating would help, right? Yeah. So, um, if if you are listening, please share the podcast with your friends. Please go to iTunes, uh, give us a review. Um, you can like us on Facebook and um, leave a comment. You can tell us. <laughs> You wrote this, Tracy. You said maybe our little podcast can spread like wildfire, and I immediately thought can spread like yeah, some kind of awful disease. That was like a double entendre, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos, and I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good when everybody sees.